0: Well good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I thank the Lord this morning that you've joined us. At Grace Bible Church, we do believe in Jesus' promise to build His church. We also trust His promise that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We believe that Jesus gives us protection through the body, through His body, the body of Christ. And here at GBC, we love to spend time with other believers. We spend time with the body because our Lord has promised that the body of Christ, the the church, will help provide, will, will provide help, protection, and accountability. We need help from one another as we navigate this world with its great difficulties. We need accountability as we are tempted by the ways of the world. And we need protection as the world attempts to make us impure. As Christians, we need to recognize, we should recognize, that we live in a broken world. A broken world that's full of sin. And we're tempted every day to be friends with the world. We're tempted to believe the world's lies, that is. But as James plainly warns in James chapter 4, verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. We cannot be friends with the world and be friends of God, be friends with God or friends of God at the same time. The Apostle Paul also warns us in Romans 12 verse 2, "Do not be conformed to this world." The Apostle John joins the chorus of warnings. He proclaims in 1 John 2:15, "Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." Well, that's a chorus of warnings, is it not? You realize, we realize that we cannot avoid the world by becoming ascetics, right? We cannot go out into the desert to devote ourselves in meditation and prayer and expect to achieve spiritual purity and holiness. That doesn't work. We also recognize that God does not miraculously make us free from sin when we come to know Him. We cannot, we do not believe, in our church, at least in this. Church, we do not believe the Bible teaches that uh, we become sinlessly perfect. Like there's no sinless perfection in the Christian life. We still have the flesh. Truly, the problem ultimately for the Christian is not the is not the world; it's the flesh. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't shouldn't strive to live in purity before the Lord. This morning, we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We're slowly making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And I I emphasize the word slowly. That's supposed to be a joke. I guess it didn't hit very well. It's okay. In our current verse, Matthew five: eight, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. Considering the world in our flesh, the question is, how are we to achieve this purity that he speaks of? How can we be pure living in an, un, an impure world? Is it even possible? Well, we'll explore these questions and more as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and praise you for your graciousness to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us this morning As Keith prays quite often, I pray that you would preach through me a a message that's better than the one I have prepared. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name, amen. Let me read Matthew 5, 1-12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The pure in heart have their hearts set on Christ and heaven no matter their circumstances. In the words of Thomas Akempis, if there is joy in the world, surely the man of pure heart possesses it. In her book called Self-Sacrifice or The Pioneers of Fugia, Sarah Myers relates the following story. Alan Gardner entered the service in the Royal Navy in 1810 and came to Christ during one of his voyages. After his retirement, he made the commitment at the bedside of his dying wife to seek out openings for the introduction of the gospel in any region where no attempt has been made. Through great difficulties, he took the gospel to Africa and ultimately was remarried. Then he went to New Zealand and South America where he brought his family. Traveling throughout the continent, he sailed with his fellow workers to Picton Island, and where they met a series of disasters. The first day, they lost an anchor. They lost both their dinghies. Their boats grew leaky. One of them was wrecked. The natives were threatening and sought to steal their supplies. Two of the men showed signs of scurvy. Provisions began to grow scarce. Want, disease, severe weather led to death." One by one, Alan Gardner watched his friends die. When his body was found, his diary was discovered recording the difficulties, the hunger, the thirst, the disease that they suffered. In his last entry, "Away from his wife and children, with no food, no water, or hope for any hope for earthly survival," he wrote: "Great and marvelous." are the loving-kindnesses of the Lord. Well, if you're like me, you wonder how someone can have so many things go wrong, leading to the death of their comrades and facing almost certain death themselves, and still have such a singular focus on the Lord Jesus. The question is, what is their secret? Most of us, including me, freak out when the power blinks. Some people believe the world is ending when there's no toilet paper on the shelf at the grocery store. I often think of the Apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He must have suffered intense loneliness having outlived the rest of the apostles. According to Tertullian, John was banished after being plunged into boiling oil in Rome, and when that didn't work, nothing happened to it. He didn't suffer anything from it. When that didn't work, he was banished. Just listen to his words in uh, Revelation 1, 9, and 10. He says this, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Well, you know what he's saying? I'm suffering with you, brothers. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the witness of Jesus. He says this. This is what I want you to hear. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Again, I ask you, what was John's secret? Last week I told you the story of my new friend and my, my son-in-law's father, Cesar, who is suffering greatly, yet I can tell you for the two weeks that I was there that he's the most joyful man that I know. May I submit to you that any man or woman able to worship our Lord through great suffering understands our Lord's words in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They have come to recognize what I'm going to call the secret sauce of a fulfilled life, no matter the circumstances. Beloved, being pure in heart is, in fact, the secret sauce of the Christian life. As I said earlier, we're returning to our study on in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're currently working through the introduction to the, what I'm calling and what I believe is the greatest sermon ever preached. In, the, in his introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus is revealing to us nine steps to our purpose, to your purpose, and ultimate blessing in his life and beyond. And we've made it to step six. Step six, pursue inward purity. Pursue inward p- purity. Now... As we have progressed through this text, I've given some definitions of some key terms. Now, I, I won't repeat them verbatim again this week, but I have added them, by the way, to the end of your handout if you find that useful. I trust that you will refer to them as you need them for understanding. Now, having said that, let me quickly step through the previous Beatitudes, since I believe they work as a unit. That's why I keep going back through them it's one of those things as a preacher, how much do you review, right? How much do you continue to review? Because you don't want to alienate people and think, well, you have to, all you do is review, but, but it's important. So we're going to do it. And I'll, do it, I'll try to do it quickly. So in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The entry point to blessing in this life and beyond is to recognize your spiritual poverty. In order to possess or enter the kingdom of heaven, you must acknowledge, first, your lostness and sin, second, your hopelessness in this life, and third, your helplessness to save yourself. Second, this leads to the second step. You need to persevere in learning what offends God. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you come to recognize the sin in you, and in the world which seeks to defile you, you know, being friends with the world, we talked about that in my intro, you come to... Have a deep and abiding sorrow for just how far short you fall of His glory. You begin to understand how far short and you get some idea. And when this happens, Jesus promises to comfort you. He promises a, a supernatural comfort from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This leads directly to the third step. The third step is to pursue lowliness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the lowly. For they shall inherit the earth. When you are poor in spirit, when you mourn over your sin, when you come to understand your utter unworthiness and the light of God's holiness, you will place no confidence in your flesh. You won't find strength in your flesh. And and you you will find your strength, that is, in Christ alone. You'll come to see your need to trust and delight in Him alone. And then you will cast yourself on His mercy, and you will trust Him for your protection. Put simply, you will become lowly. And you will join those who Jesus promises will inherit the earth. This brings us to step four. I told you I was going to go quickly. Brings us to step four. We pursue righteousness. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus declares, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, the question is, what does he mean by hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, Jesus teaches teaches that God blesses those who hunger and thirst for his imputed righteousness. These are people who recognize that they're entirely parched and starved for a righteousness that is not their own, the righteousness of Christ. At salvation, when we become believers, God imputes Jesus' righteousness to the believer thus satisfying their need and making them positionally righteous. The Holy Spirit also comes to dwell in them, starting the process of sanctification, which is then the gradual, practical process of becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. In other words, I said this last week, we are slowly, as Christians, we are slowly becoming what we already are in Christ. We're positionally righteous in Christ, But yet God is slowly sanctifying us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through His Word, and we're slowly becoming what we already are in Christ. Now, by the way, suffering comes into that as well. Now, that wraps up the first four steps, or the first four Beatitudes. They deal principally, if you've noticed this, they deal principally with the inner man. They are what makes us truly Christian, And give us a godly and and holy character. You are made to be a Christian by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. This process, what we have to recognize is this process changes everything about you. It changes how you think, your inner thoughts and your attitudes. It changes how you view life and death. And it changes how you view yourself primarily, but also how you view others and how you view the world around you. You become a new man. You become a new cre- creation with all new affections. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, uh, Paul says that we uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. <clears throat> now you must take the first four steps before taking step five and beyond. And when you do, when you take those first four steps, your actions will begin to change. Now, obviously, when I say you're taking these steps, obviously the Lord is working in your heart, right? Salvation is not of us, it's of the Lord, right? But we have to take those steps. Kind of a mystery, if you will. Now, last week, we began to look at the first of these these new ways of acting. This is step five. Now, we're going to slow down a little bit now. Uh, in our review we're going to slow down a little bit so we've gone fast step one through step four let me slow down a little bit and let me give you a little bit more detail about this step five you will prefer mercy so Jesus in Matthew 5 7 says blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy now last week last week we began to look at the nature of true mercy First, we looked at worldly mercy. We saw that worldly mercy looks for the world to reciprocate, you know, mercy for mercy. The, 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 a worldly kind of mercy looks for some sort of gain. It asks, what's in it for me? A uh, worldly mercy looks for praise, praise from others. It, it wants others to recognize our merciful actions. It, it wants mercy from men. It doesn't regard that mercy from God is the only mercy that counts. That's that's worldly mercy. So what does true mercy look like? Well, true mercy can be exemplified or is exemplified by our Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate example of true mercy. He, he 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 recognized that His mercy would not be reciprocated by men in any way. Our Lord Jesus then, though, was the most merciful man ever to live. He is the supreme example of mercy. While he was on earth, he healed the sick, he restored sight to the blind, he made the crippled to walk, he made the deaf to hear, he found the miserable and he restored them to life in him. According to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Yet, Yet he did this, he went to the cross, he did this, yet his own people mercilessly condemned him to die on the cross at the hands of the Romans. Not only that, but the Romans gladly complied, they brutally and mercilessly beat him and hung him on the cross. He was merciful, yet he did not expect nor did he receive mercy from men. You see, true mercy imitates our Lord. Perhaps the greatest way to see our Lord's mercy is to recognize His desire to forgive even as He suffered on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, as Jesus was dying on the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He was suffering at the hands of these godless men, and he says, Please forgive them, Lord. Please forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. He did this even as they cast lots and divided up his, his garments among themselves. Here's what's amazing. He could have called down legions of angels against them. He told, It's what he told them. He told Pilate, He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Despite having this incredible power over His persecutors, Jesus chose to show mercy and forgive. As we heard last week, forgiveness flows out of mercy, and mercy flows out of love. And we see in Jesus on the cross the greatest example of forgiveness, the greatest example of mercy, and ultimately the greatest example of love. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. As you're doing so, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen preached a sermon indicting the Jewish leaders for resisting the Holy Spirit, for persecuting the prophets, and for disobeying God's law. In Acts 7.51, I want you to listen to his final indictments. He says this in 7.51, You men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you, have, you now have become. You who received the law as ordained by angels yet did not observe it. Now, pretty bad people, right? I mean, it's this big, big indictment. In 754, these leaders responded by being angry, by being furious, is what it says. Now, when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts and began gnashing their teeth at them. Now, I want you to listen to Acts 7, and 56. Read along. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the, the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I want you to remember those verses. Later, I'm going to make a connection to Matthew 5.8, our current verse. For now, I want you to see their evil. They began to stone him. They began to stone him. And continued, even as he called out in Acts 7.59, this is Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now look at Acts 7.60. Acts 7.60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord now, these are bad dudes, and they're doing a bad thing. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. You see, Stephen was willing to forgive them, even as they sinned against him. He could have prayed, he could have prayed against them, yet he followed the, his Lord by mercifully praying for him, for them, that is. It's amazing. Think about it. Think of the mercy that's willing to pray, forgive them, as opposed to calling down legions of angels, as the Lord mentioned earlier. In God's providence, we know that God did forgive the apostle Paul. He later would call himself the foremost of sinners. You see, Paul was there when that happened. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. And God did show mercy on him. And it's interesting, just listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. It is it's a trustworthy, it's trustworthy to saying and deserving fullest acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. <clears throat> here's, here's what I want you to hear, verse 16. So he's the foremost of sinners. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He gave hearty approval, I think it says. Verse 16, yet for this reason, I was shown, what? Mercy, mercy, so that in me as the foremost, the foremost what, Paul, the foremost sinner, right? Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Beloved church, I hope that you stand amazed at God's mercy, we should be amazed at how God answered Stephen's prayer. So, what is true mercy then? Well, true mercy is always concerned about other people's needs, no matter the situation. It is sympathetic and compassionate, even toward people caught up in the ramifications of their sin, including including sin against us. True mercy never seeks to take advantage of anyone. Even when our enemies find themselves under our power and control, mercy always desires what is best for them, by the way, including justice. Genuine compassion or genuine mercy and justice always work together. The genuinely merciful will never overlook justice, yet will seek to show mercy even toward those who are receiving their just punishments for wrongdoing. True mercy was especially exemplified by our Lord Jesus as He suffered on the cross at the hands of His godless enemies. I hope you understand true mercy and understand that God blesses the merciful. So now, we've studied step five. Let's look at step six. Step six, pursue inward purity. Look back at your text back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I am a linear thinker. I am always logically stepping from point A to point B to point C in my mind. Now, as we have progressed through the Beatitudes, I have tried to understand the logical sequence in my mind. I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain that the Lord didn't haphazardly put these together, that uh, he had a, a logical sequence in, in his mind as he presented these truths. Uh, the Lord, our Lord is, is a, the, there's, there's order with him, right? We see that in the universe. We can, we can be assured that the order here is perfect coming out of the mind of God. It is part of a beautiful sequence of truths coming from God himself. Now, John MacArthur has said and believes that Matthew 5 8 is the climax of the Beatitudes. It is the central truth to which the previous five lead and from which the following two flow. Now, clearly, Jesus wanted these to be understood in order, and it is our business to try to discover his thought process. Now, we've arrived at a Beatitude that to some people may seem out of place. You see, The promise to see God would seem to be the pinnacle of the human experience, the pinnacle of the Christian experience. It would seem to be the the supreme and most ultimate end of all human experience, right? To see God would be the ultimate purpose of man's religion. So why did, if that's true, why did Jesus place this beatitude in this particular place? Not at the beginning, not at the end, but here in this place not even in the, in the middle. Well, we've shown, I hope that we've shown, that Jesus addresses our greatest need in the first three Beatitudes. Our greatest need is to enter the kingdom of God, salvation. Our greatest need is to, we, is to enter the kingdom of God, and if we do so, we must become poor in spirit, we must mourn over our sin, and we must be lowly. Now, These these three Beatitudes result in a true understanding of ourselves. You see, we are self-centered sinners, say that fast three times, self-centered sinners who need to come to the end of ourselves. You see, as we stand in our flesh, our ego, if you will, using a psychological term, has truly ruined our whole life and will continue to do so if we don't recognize that. You can b- believe that if you don't recognize that, if you don't recognize how self-centered you really are, if you don't recognize that, it will continue. It has ruined your life, and it will continue to do so. I would submit to I'm you sure that. Well, Siri, Siri doesn't understand, but I hope you do. I would I would submit to you that every prisoner that's in the jailhouse right now. Uh, the issue is that they don't see that they're at the center of the problem. I mean, that's just the way it works. And you don't have to be in jail. I mean, the only difference between me and somebody in jail was I didn't get caught. That's supposed to be a joke. No, it really is true. It's true. It's very true. But it, it's a precisely when we come to that full realization that we will recognize our unrighteousness. And we, when we, we will come to see just how far short of God's righteousness that we fall. When that happens, so, so we, we realize, so we take the first three steps, we realize how far short we fall of God's righteousness, and when that happens, what do we begin to do? Step four, we begin to hunger and thirst for His righteousness, do we not? This is the watershed moment. Jesus promises that those who come to this moment will be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. That's Matthew 5, 6. We come to fully recognize our need. Then we, we come to fully recognize our need and then we hunger and thirst. Then our Lord fills us. He satisfies us. From that point, we are viewing the results of God filling us. Put simply, the first... Three Beatitudes bring us to a fantastic crescendo. A fantastic crescendo where we are imputed or given the very righteousness of Christ. We are satisfied with the very righteousness of Christ. And from that moment, everything else flows. Those who are truly poor in spirit will be merciful. Those who mourn over their sin will be pure in heart. Those who are lowly will be peacemakers. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, true righteousness, will be persecuted for the sake of that righteousness. There it is. That's the order. So the question is, how does that order help us understand the current beatitude? Well, right now, we are considering the second statement as it corresponds to the current verse. You may recall the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you remember what we are mourning? What are we mourning? we're mourning over our sorry sinful state. that uh, we're mourning not only over the things we did wrong, the sins we committed, we're mourning over all the things that we wanted to do wrong. all the things we did wrong and didn't get caught. we're mourning all of it. we're coming to we come to see the truth of Jeremiah's statement that the heart is deceitful above all else. Are more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. We come to understand that it slaps us full in the face. You could say, we come to see the terrible impurity of our own hearts, and we mourn over it. It follows that the only way to a pure heart, then, is to recognize the impurity of your heart, and mourn over it. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the only way to have a pure heart is to realize, or the only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart, and to mourn about it, it, it to such an extent that you do that, which alone can lead to cleansing and purity. That is calling out to the Lord, praying for His righteousness. Right? Earlier, I pointed to the promise to see God as the pinnacle of human experience, but I don't think so. I don't think that's his emphasis here anyway. I believe his emphasis is on the purity of our hearts, not on the promise. See, I think people get it backwards. The issue is the purity of our hearts. So what does it mean then to be pure in heart? I think we need to start considering that question by what is the heart? What, what is the heart? Well, in Scripture, the heart is portrayed as the center of our being. It is who we, it is who we truly are. It's our personality, if you will. You could get the idea that the heart primarily refers to our affections or our emotions. We can easily romanticize that notion, right? We say things like, love is a matter of the heart. And in doing so, we're primarily referring to the feelings or emotions that accompany love. But in Scripture, it's not like that. It's much more than that. It's much more than our affections or our emotions. Our heart, the heart in Scripture includes our intellect, our will, and our emotions. So it's, it's all three. You might say then the heart, according to Scripture, is the totality, the totality of who we are. It is the, the sum total of what makes us tick. It, you could say the heart is what makes me, me, and you, you, if you will. The heart is the, the fountainhead out of which everything in our life flows. So, why does Jesus emphasize the heart? So that's the question. Why does he emphasize the heart? Truly, there's a great emphasis on, on the heart in Scripture. If we look at Scripture, you should have already noticed Jesus' Jesus's emphasis on the heart as we study the Beatitudes, right? It's the heart is the issue. The, the gospel itself deals directly with your heart. Our our Lord always addressed the heart because it is the very center of who we are. Your heart is what makes you you. It is also the seat of your trouble, of our trouble, of our great troubles. In the the words of our Lord, in Matthew 15, 19, he just cut straight to the chase. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, False witnesses with well, false witness and slanders, right? I mean, that, that's that's pretty straightforward. You know, mo- modern psychology would lead us to believe that our environment leads to all of our troubles. You see, modern psychology would teach that we can change a person's outcome by changing their surroundings. But I'm telling you right now, that's not what the Bible teaches. In Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman existed in literal paradise. It was perfect. There was nothing wrong with their environment. It was absolutely flawless, perfect, nothing wrong, nothing out of place. In Genesis one thirty-one, God saw all that he had made and declared it to be very good. This is the holy God declaring it to be very good. But guess what? The man and woman first sinned in that perfect paradise. The fallen man had nothing to do with their surroundings. And I think that's important for us to recognize. Their perfect surroundings showed that their problem was in their hearts. Therefore, we can't expect, and I want you to get this, we cannot expect that putting man back in paradise will solve all his problems. It won't. If that were the case, then God wouldn't have blocked the way back to the garden and the tree of life. You see, in God's infinite mercy, He didn't want man to live forever in that fallen condition. So the worst thing you could ever have done, he could have ever done, is let them go back into the garden in that sinful state and stay that way forever. It's his mercy that that, that he didn't allow that. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones has it right. He says this, Take any problem in life, anything that leads to wretchedness, find out its cause, and you will always discover that it comes from the heart somewhere, from some unworthy desire in somebody, in an individual, in a group, or in a nation, end quote. That's so important, I want to read it again. Take any problem in life, anything that leads to wretchedness, find its cause, find out its cause, and you will always discover that it comes from the heart somewhere, from some unworthy desire in somebody, in an individual, in a group, or in a nation, end quote. Any problem that there's a, there is in a family, it's a heart issue, right? Any problem there is in a church, it's a heart issue. Any problem there is in government, It's a heart issue. It's it always comes back to the heart. That's what he's saying. In reading and studying the Gospels, Gospels, you may notice the heart was always our Lord's major issue with the Pharisees. You see, they placed all their emphasis was placed on the externals of religion. They wanted to look good on the outside, yet inside their hearts they were totally impure. They were full of great wickedness. Just listen. Let's listen to Jesus' warning in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. He says, Woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, he's saying it's in your hearts. It's inside of you. That's the problem. In, in their pursuit of, of external religion, they didn't recognize the, the point of God's law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, which Jesus says is the great and foremost commandment. And he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. You see, you see, they didn't recognize That their impure, wicked hearts were the problem. That they didn't love the Lord their God and they didn't love their neighbor. That was indicative of the problem. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, starting in verse 17, a man came up to Jesus, and he asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to read with me his answer, Jesus' answer in Mark 10, 18, and 19. He says, Why do you call me good? Uh, no one is good except God alone. And what he's saying is, is that you're not, you don't recognize me for who I really am. You don't recognize me for who I really am, so don't call me good. But he says this, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Now, that's an interesting one. Honor your father and your mother. Now, ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's answering him by quoting what we'll call the second table of the commandments. It's it's basically the ones having to do with our relationship with others. The first table has to do with our relationship with God and who God is, the character of God, and our relationship with Him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table has to do with our neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. So they're summed up by those two. The the law is summed up by those two things, right? All right, so he's, he's quoting the second table. But he also threw in, it's interesting, he threw in, do not defraud. Now, I would argue... I didn't look into any commentaries on this, but I would argue that defrauding someone is a special case of bearing false witness. So later we're going to find out that he owned this man owned much property. So Jesus' statement was probably specific to this man. Quite possibly he owned much land because he had cheated others out of that property, right? So that he had defrauded others. He bore false witness, basically. Okay. But Jesus knew what was in the heart of this man. He knew. So I want you to notice the man's answer in, in, in chapter 10, verse 20. In 10, verse 20, he says, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, this man believed in his heart that he had kept all these commandments. Now, I submit to you that this is a deceived and impure heart, is it not? He didn't know, he didn't understand the wickedness and impurity of his own heart. And here's what's interesting. Jesus knew that that was his problem. Jesus knew that, right? Look at verse 21. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So Jesus gave him what I would call a sincere invitation to follow him, but he had to give away all his possessions. He had to give away all his possessions. Now remember, Jesus knew what's in his heart. I mean, that's why he's saying this. Because Jesus knew what was in his heart. Look at the response. Verse 22. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Church, with one statement, Jesus completely unmasked the impurities of this man's heart. You see, with his heart, he loved his possessions much more than he could ever love God. Remember the whole first commandment, the, the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, love your neighbor yourself. He loved himself more than he loved God or neighbor, right? That was his, his heart was the problem. And Jesus was able to unmask his heart so that he could see his wickedness. He, he was able to see it. That's why he was grieved. But he was unwilling to do anything about it. Well, truly, this is the case for all of us until Jesus gives us a clean heart, until he gives us a pure heart. Truly, that is your greatest need. Greatest need, Martin Lloyd Jones has said, we have to remind ourselves again that the Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or of intellect; it is a condition of the heart. End quote." You see, your problems always arise from your heart because your heart is deceitful and wicked. My heart is deceitful and wicked. There's no exceptions. Therefore, man's troubles are at the very core of who he is. He is impure at the very core of his being. The Apostle Paul captures this problem well in Romans 3, 10, and 11. There is none righteous, not even one. There is not one who understands. No one seeks after God. You see, we have impure hearts. But just like the man in Mark 10, Jesus can and does reveal those impurities and He can give us a new heart. So given this problem, then what does our Lord mean by pure in hearts? Well, the Greek word has two main meanings. It can mean without hypocrisy. It has the idea of singleness. It means to be single-minded in devotion. There are no Hidden spots or agendas in our hearts is the idea. You may recall in James one five through eight, James warns against being a man who doubts. He warns that the one who doubts is like the the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Then, in James one seven and eight, he warns this. He says this: For that man, the one who doubts, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, the man that James is talking about in James chapter 1, he doesn't have a pure heart. He has a, he has a heart that's divided. On one hand, that man, the man that James is talking about, says that he has faith. He, he talks about faith. He, he says he, he, externally, it looks like even he may have faith at times. But then his actions, his ultimate actions, proved the impurity of his hearts. You see, out of the heart come, you know, all these sins that Jesus talked about. I love the words of Psalm eighty-six, eleven. Teach me your way, O Yahweh; I will walk in truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. You see, beloved, our hearts are naturally divided. They're naturally divided, I mean, we have divided loyalties. on one hand, we desire a form of godliness, but on the other, we desire to follow after our sinful flesh. When we become pure in heart, we no longer have those divided loyalties i remember I remember my own testimony as God was drawing me to himself, I would fall back into sinful patterns i would I would struggle with the things that I wanted in life. I would struggle mostly with, with anger. That was my biggest, biggest struggle. When, especially when my desires were frustrated. I, I, I can still struggle with those things, but by God's grace, He's purified or He's purifying my heart. He's making me pure. He's slowly burning away those divided loyalties. He's slowly changing my double-mindedness. He's, he's slowly uniting my heart to fear His name. That's sanctification, by the way. Now, there's a further meaning for the word pure. It has the idea of being cleansed, cleansed. Some of you, some of you older folks in here, David and David, he may be the only one who remembers this, I don't know. Some of you may remember the old ivory soap commercials. They boasted, oh, Miss Elaine's here too. I just heard her cough. They, they boasted their soap was, you may remember this, 99 and 44, 100% pure. It was so, so pure that it floats. It still floats, right? I haven't used it in a long time, but I think it does. Of course, this has the idea of being free from impurities, but the ivory people wanted us to know that their soap was superior because it was so pure, therefore it cleansed us better, Right? The idea. Earlier, I told you Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They were impure and could not stay there. They could not be in God's presence in their defiled condition. You might say we see this again in in Revelation 21. Now it's it's funny because Revelation or Genesis and Revelation are bookends, right? Nothing can be defiled in or nothing defiled can exist in the heavenly city. John says that no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They, 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 there needs to be, that they're defiled, they need to be cleansed, is the idea. Pure. In Revelation 22, 14 and 15, we find the following promise. Blessed are those who wash their wo- robes so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter... By the gates into the city, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immu- immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. In other words, only those who have been purified, cleansed, pure, made pure, shall enter the heavenly city and dwell with God. And the impure will remain outside forever. And we're not talking about 99 to 44 100% pure. We're talking about pure, full purity. Nothing, nothing mixed. Nothing, nothing but single purity, singularity, if you will. Wholeness. Purity that can only describe God Himself. Said another way, we will be like Jesus, the Lord Jesus, pure and perfect and spotless. So, how do we become pure in heart? We must believe God's truth. You see, the way to purity of the heart is to recognize your dirty heart, your divided heart, your sinful heart, and to mourn over it. This is the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who mourn. The way to purity is to recognize your impurity. We ask Jesus then to reveal that impurity of our hearts. And He does so. He does so. He'll do so miraculously at salvation. And He'll do so miraculously as you become more and more like Him. And what I want you to recognize is that that He will do it, but it's going to be a painful process. It's a painful process. Painful. It's a process that if if you're blessed, it will continue for the rest of your life, but it's painful. Oh, it hurts. I was hurt this past week. As I dealt with my sin. He gives us spouses to help us with that. But if we believe in the Lord Jesus, if we believe Him, He will cleanse us. He will make us pure. I love, I love the words of David in Psalm 51, verse 7. He says, "...Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." And wash me and I shall be, what? Whiter than snow. Only God can make you clean. Only God can purify. Only God can wash you. Only God can make you whiter than snow through the work of Christ. And borrowing from the the words of James, ask Him in faith without doubting and He will do it today. Ask in faith without doubting and He will do it today. I love the words of the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It's funny, I didn't notice that we were singing that this morning. I love the words. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. Brighter than snow you may be today. So how do we know when we're pure in heart? A.W. Pink gives this answer. I just I'll let him answer it. One of the most conclusive evidences, evidences that we do possess a pure heart is to be conscious of and burdened with the impurity of the impurity which still indwells in us. Think about that. The, the, way, the best way to know that you have an impure heart, or that you are pure, sorry, that you are pure in heart positionally in Christ is to recognize the impurity still left in you crazy kind of like you never mind i was going to give a golf reference but it won't work so what is the result of becoming pure in heart jesus says blessed are the pure in heart matthew 5 8 blessed are the pure heart pure in heart for they shall see god now earlier i baited you hopefully i baited you sufficiently i used stephen as an example of a man who showed mercy well, I want to show you something that quite literally jumped off the page at me while I was reading that account. You can turn back to Acts 7, 55 and 56 if you want. You don't have to. I'll just read it to you. Acts 7:55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Beloved, do you know why he saw God? Purity. He was pure in heart. I I can't imagine a better example other than the Lord Jesus himself of what we're talking about here. Oh, by the way, he's being persecuted, which we'll get to that in a little while, but in the next few weeks. Beloved church, brothers and sisters, brethren, my prayer for you is that you are pure in heart like Stephen. I pray that one day you will see the heavens open up and you will see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I pray that together we will be undefiled and will enter into the heavenly city and we will dwell with God forever. And if you're here today and you don't know Him, if you're here today and you don't know Him, if you will turn to Him today, if you will beg for His righteousness, you'll trust in His sacrifice on the cross. He will save you today. He will give you His righteousness. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He will place you in Christ. And you will be made pure in heart. And you will see God. You will enter that heavenly city. Undefiled. If you don't... You'll be outside, and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth as you suffer the wrath of our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning praise you. Again, we come to you so thankful for your word. Father, I pray that we would be pure in hearts. Pray that we will one day see you, that we will stand in your presence pure, and whole. In Christ's name, amen.